Hello and welcome to Tea Time Theology. I'm Ivy Swinsky and today's guest is the Reverend Canon Dina Cleaver Bartholomew. And we will be talking about women in the Bible and in the church. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. Can you just tell us really quickly what canon means in your title? Yes, a canon is from an old English root that means um, to order and the canon helps keep order um, and serves as someone on the staff of either a cathedral or a bishop. And in my case, I serve on the can, um, the staff of the bishop as the canon to the ordinary. And then people wonder what the ordinary means. And that is another name for the bishop, because the bishop is the one who keeps order, um, oh. the one who sets the standard, essentially. So the bishop is the ordinary, and I serve as the person who is directly with him in helping with that task. Wow. Super official. Well, thank you for being here then. <laughs> it is my pleasure. So why don't we start with your Bible quote? My Bible quote is from Luke. It's chapter 1, verses 37. Um, for nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Great. Um, and is there a certain reason you picked that one? Or... Well, when the angel Gabriel came to Mary, it was a surprise that she was called into a specific kind of ministry, literally helping embody the presence of God in the world. And her response was not to deny it or to turn it away, but to say, nothing is impossible with God. So she gave her assent for God to do whatever God deemed best through her. Oh, that's wonderful. I love that. Uh, I sort of took it on the flip side. Um, so the secular quote I have is from the song The Man by Taylor Swift. Um, and the specific part I brought in is, I'm so sick of running as fast as I can, wondering if I'd get there quicker if I was a man. Um, and I think that's really interesting in that sort of context to think about women, not only in the Bible, but in the church as a broader sense, like with women ordination, only really becoming a thing in the 70s. Is that that's correct, right? I have the right years. Yes. Okay. Um, and sort of how the church has treated women over the years and maybe how that's differentiated from how they are presented in the Bible and thinking about it in that sort of way. Well, women in the church and women in the Bible are obviously related, yes. but in different eras in the church and in different times in the Bible, there are very different perceptions of women and presentations of women and of what they're allowed to be and do. Mm -hmm. And we always keep in mind that what women actually lived 
is distilled into the Bible and it's edited by many people before we encounter the written text. Mm -hmm. So that means there's usually a much vaster array than what we see because this is something that has gone through thousands of years, especially when you go back in oral tradition in the Old Testament. And as many editors do, they keep the parts they like and not the ones they don't, although they leave traces often of alternate stories. Mm. And sometimes it's those little nuggets that help us realize there is a much broader role for women than is often presented in our culture as being in the Bible. So sometimes when we read the Bible, we find things that really surprise us because it isn't in keeping with the stories we usually hear from the Bible. Awesome. Um, do you have a favorite female character? And character might be the wrong word here, but sort of female in the Bible that you're like, this one is one that I sort of go back to time and time again. I would say I have a range. Great. Um, obviously, I love Mary Magdalene. Mm -hmm. um, I think she was often culturally misrepresented, and we're just beginning to rediscover and appreciate her on a deeper level. I really appreciate the representations of holy wisdom, which occur both in the Old Testament and in the Apocrypha, and then again in the New Testament, but again, are just starting to be more fully appreciated within the church. And I also like some of the women in the Old Testament that I didn't know much about until I started studying the Bible more deeply. There are some really courageous countercultural women in the Old Testament. And I find that when I've told their stories, especially for youth group Bible studies or in church school Bible studies, they're almost always things no one has ever heard. Yeah. No. And that makes it kind of fun because they're discovering it for the first time and going, we didn't know women did these kinds of things, much less that those stories are in the Bible. So I have a lot of fun with those. Yeah. Uh, well, let's start talking about some of them. So let's start with Mary Magdalene, because I feel like she's kind of one of those people that you go to when you think about women in the Bible. Yes. Um, and she's one that I personally really love. Yes. Um, as well as I agree with you, I feel like she has been misrepresented in many ways. She has been. I think one of the unfortunate things is there is an historic error that was made regarding Mary Magdalene and actually came out in a papal letter, uh, which is one of the reasons it's lasted so long as a misunderstanding. And that is because in Luke 8.2, there's a mention of Mary Magdalene, just a fleeting one, but she's named individually, of having been cured of seven demons. But immediately preceding that mention of her name is this story about a woman who is a great sinner who is forgiven of her sins. Mm -hmm. And those two stories have become conflated where the assumption was that Mary Magdalene was that woman who was the great sinner. And that's where that whole idea that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute came mm -hmm. from, that she that's what a woman who was a great sinner would have been sort of a euphemism for back then. Mm -hmm. And so those two things were put together erroneously. It doesn't name, the Bible doesn't name who that woman who was a great sinner was. Mm -hmm. But since Mary Magdalene is mentioned by name in the next paragraph, 
it became assumed that that sinner was Mary Magdalene. Mm. And so all the portrayals of Mary Magdalene as a prostitute are sort of loosely based on this misinterpretation. Mm -hmm. There's no evidence anywhere that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. Mm -hmm. So it really has been a disempowering story for Mary Magdalene. What Mary Magdalene should rightly be known for is two other stories, um, one in Matthew 28 and one in John 20, and those are both resurrection stories. Mm. And in both of those cases, Mary Magdalene encounters the risen Christ, and she is the first one to encounter the risen Christ. I mean, one of the best stories is John 20, the Easter story, mm -hmm. because that's where she encounters him and has quite a conversation with him. Mm. And in that story in particular, Jesus tells her, go and tell my brothers. And for us, what we learn is that in Greek, the term apostle means one sent. So when he sends her, when he says, go and tell my brothers, she becomes the first apostle of the risen Christ. Mm -hmm. She is the one commissioned by the risen Jesus to go and tell the good news of his resurrection to the male disciples. And she does just that with the famous words, I have seen the Lord. And she tells them exactly what Jesus has told her to say. And she also, in a more abbreviated version in Matthew, has the same commission from the risen Jesus to go and tell his brothers, and she does that in Matthew as well. So that is the story she should be the most famous for. Yeah, definitely. Um, what is the difference between an apostle and a disciple? Because there are a lot of people who consider Mary Magdalene not one of the 12 disciples, but a disciple of Jesus, right? Right. A disciple is basically a follower, a learner. Mm -hmm. So lots of rabbis had disciples because they would follow them and learn from them. That's why they call Jesus teacher, which is what rabbi means. Mm -hmm. And so anyone could be a follower or a disciple. And he called the 12 to be disciples. And in truth, he also sent out um, both the 12 disciples and then later 70 others, it tells us in Luke, to go and prepare the way for him to preach and to heal in various towns and villages. So they were apostles in that sense that Jesus sent them out to prepare the way. Um, but a disciple can be any of us who choose to follow and learn from Jesus. To be an apostle means one sent by Jesus. Mm -hmm. So there's a fine distinction. And when we talk about the 12 apostles, we usually mean the ones who were sent by the risen Christ. And that happens at the end of Matthew in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, where he sends them out as the risen Christ to preach the good news to every nation and to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But that comes after the risen Christ has sent Mary Magdalene on Easter. Uh, why do you think we have started to shift how we think about Mary Magdalene? Well, I think partly because we have more information and with the emergence of the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, which was in 1945, but they're still being uncovered and translated. But they expanded the number of scrolls we had, which were translated by various scribes. And what one needs to remember is that 
they were always translated. And when you translate, you make editorial choices. Mm. And when you get copies of various translations, you get a bigger picture. And so we got some corrective and supplementary information, which helped us to have fuller documentation of the Bible stories. But we also have scholars who came in with a more open perspective, like looking at those two Mary Magdalene stories side by side and saying, wait, there's no mention anywhere of her being a prostitute. Where did that come from? And learning that that, that inference was made long ago and then just carried forward without a lot of scholarly research. And also, we have women who are scholars now, who are yes. able to participate in <laughs> academics in a fuller way than they were quite a while ago. So I think all those things have helped make the understanding of who Mary Magdalene is grow and be clearer. We recently found Mary Magdalene's gospel, right? Like that sort right. of has become a thing. That's considered one of the non-canonical gospels mm -hmm. and by, by canon in that sense we mean the, the rule or list again it's back to having an order or rule mm -hmm. um, of what made the, um, the final list of what we consider essential documents for salvation as in the Old and New Testament and those were way back at the councils in the 300s so that mm -hmm. we have that final list. We haven't added to the canon. Um, so in addition to that, we found extra books, but they don't all meet the same standard. It isn't always clear where they came from or who the authors were or who translated them. So it's one of those interesting books we have like the Gospel of Thomas mm. and the Gospel of Mary. Mm -hmm. along with a number of other sort of intriguing finds, but we don't hold them to the same standard we do the Bible. Can, can you add things to the canon of the Bible? Not at this point. Is there any other things that we should think about when we think of Mary Magdalene? Like, is there this huge piece besides her not being a prostitute that we just miss out on? Well, there are a number of places in the Bible when it mentions the women, and usually they name Mary Magdalene. So the fact that a woman got named is exceedingly rare in the Bible, that she's consistently named in each gospel, that she seems to be along with a small cadre of others, usually Mary, the mother of Jesus, mm -hmm. and sometimes Mary and Martha and Johanna, um, that they get named as the women who are faithful, that they're the ones who are at the foot of the cross and stay with Jesus through his crucifixion and death and go and witness where his body is laid. They're the ones who go to take care of his body to prepare it with spices and ointments. They're the ones who are literally faithful to the end. And I think because Jesus expelled the seven demons from Mary Magdalene, it seems to have been a life-changing moment for her, and she follows him faithfully as a disciple. And so her faithfulness, her bravery, her willingness to be an apostle, to speak the truth to the disciples, even when, at least in Matthew, they pretty much didn't believe the women because they thought, well, that just sounds too good to be true. Yeah. And, and understandably so. Mm -hmm. um, I think that our understanding of Mary Magdalene's courage and faithfulness mm -hmm. is one of the things that we should carry with us. And her willingness to be a public witness. Yeah. Do you think that there is something important in the fact that it was the woman that stayed with him till the end? Yes. 
because the, the men, and again, understandably so, were worried that with many Roman executions of leaders, they also rounded up the followers and mm. executed them to send a message. So the male disciples mostly went and hid. That's why we hear that on Easter Eve and John, they were hidden behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. Mm -hmm. They meant the Jewish leaders mm. who might come and round them up as they had some previous Jewish revolutionaries mm -hmm. and executed them by crucifixion as well. And so the male disciples chose to hide. The women stayed at the foot of the cross with Jesus through his death. And that was a great act of courage. Uh, you talked about one woman in your listing who is a personal favorite of mine, Martha. Martha. <laughs> Especially there's that one instance where it's with Mary and Martha, where Martha's like, Mary's not helping get anything ready. Like, come yell at her. And Jesus is like, but she's listening. And I always think that's such an interesting story. And I have very much simplified Yes. A more yes. complex <laughs> moment <laughs> um, to like two sentences. But what is your take on that story? Because I always love finding out. Right. Well, there are two Martha stories and, yes. and they're really interesting and different. And I think they help balance one another. Mm -hmm. So the one you reference is in Luke 10. And in Luke 10, it's Mary and Martha and they, you know, all the guests show up at the house and Martha is doing the traditional female role of being hospitable. Mm -hmm. And she is preparing food and getting everything ready. And all the male disciples are sitting there listening to Jesus as followers and disciples are supposed to do and as men were usually allowed to do mm -hmm. because women would engage in hospitality. But Mary had also decided to sit down at the feet of Jesus, which was the traditional posture for a disciple, mm -hmm. and to listen to the teacher along with the male disciples. So Martha was feeling a little overwhelmed, and as we often get when we're overwhelmed, a little cranky. Mm -hmm. So she went to Jesus and said, tell her to help me. And a lot of people either understand Martha's sense of being stressed and overwhelmed or sort of roll their eyes. But what Jesus does is patiently turns to her and says, Mary has chosen the better part, and I will not take that from her. Mm -hmm. And some people read that as Jesus belittling the role of hospitality. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that was it at all. What Jesus is saying there is more in the first things first category. Mm. That hospitality is always welcomed and appreciated, but that Mary has chosen the role of a disciple Mm -hmm. which was usually not permitted for women. Mm -hmm. And he has explicitly allowed women to sit in the traditional role of a male, sit at his feet and learn along with the men. So he has given that permission to allow a place for women to be included in the circle of disciples. Mm. And that is a highly unusual thing for a male rabbi to permit Mm -hmm. much less encourage. So he essentially opens the circle for Martha. Mm -hmm. And often it's read as more sort of chastising her, but I don't hear it that way. Mm -hmm. So he's, as he does in many cases, broadens the circle rather than limiting it. 
And then what happens in the John story, uh, which is John 11, is when Lazarus is dying and Jesus does not come to the home of Mary and Martha until after Lazarus has died. And he deliberately delays, Mm -hmm. which is perplexing for most of us who read that story. (laughs) It's very hard to hear that he chooses to wait. But when he does show up, I find it fascinating that Jesus responds to Mary and Martha each in the way that they need. Mm-hmm. So Martha hears that he's coming because people come and tell her that Jesus is approaching the house. She goes out to him and says to him, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And that's a great faith statement because she believes he could have prevented that. And then he says, yes, but he will rise again at the last day. Do you believe this? And she makes this profound theological statement where she says, yes, I believe that you are the one who is coming into the world. Mm. So she says, essentially, yes, I believe you are the resurrection and the life because he makes the I am statement. I am the resurrection and the life. You don't have to wait for the resurrection because I am the resurrection. And it's one of those, uh, the ego eimi, which is what the language, Greek language that we read God using out of the burning bush, the I am language Mm -hmm. that God uses to define God's self. Well, in John, Jesus uses that same God language to define himself. And she responds with a profound theological affirmation. So they have this theological conversation, which is just amazing. And then he goes to Mary and she needs a pastoral response. So she's weeping and he weeps with her. Mm. So he shows the flexibility to be theological with Martha and pastoral with Mary. Mm. And, and if you thought Mary was a Martha was put off by Jesus's response in the first story, it's clear that she's willing to engage with him in sort of this, you let my brother die conversation. Yeah, she's willing to be angry at him. She is. And he's able to not only accept that, but to take it to another level and she goes right with him. Mm. Which is also what the Samaritan woman does. Every time in the Samaritan woman's story that he shifts the conversation to another level, Mm -hmm. she follows him. So it's this sort of wonderful witty repartee that goes back and forth. It's contrasted with the, there's a Nicodemus story where Nicodemus can't follow Jesus at all because Jesus is being metaphorical and Nicodemus is being literal and they just keep missing each other. Mm -hmm. And then you get this Samaritan woman who's first a Samaritan, so she's a foreigner, Mm -hmm. and then she's a woman, um, and then she's been married several times, so she's clearly outside the realm of acceptable. And they end up going back and forth and back and forth and increasing levels of theological sophistication and spiritual understanding. And she keeps pace right with him. Mm. And Martha does a similar thing. So it's really fascinating. Jesus is open to doing that with women. Yeah, he's open to conversations happening. And and he starts with wherever someone is, Mm -hmm. which I think is wonderfully invitational. It would be hard not to talk about Mary. Yes. <laughs> She's kind Mary, of a big the mother one. of Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> She's kind of a big one. She is. Um, where, where is your reading of Mary? What is your sort of idea of her? I think Mary had tremendous courage to say, essentially, let it be with me according to your word. 
to have an angel show up. I mean, the the resp- response every time an angel shows up in the Bible is that the angel has to say, either be not afraid or do not fear, depending on your translation, because good heavens, that would be frightening for anyone yeah. to have an angel just show up. So Gabriel shows up, gives her this message, which is extremely difficult to understand and and perplexing even in its sense of, so how can this be when I am not married? (laughs) (laughs) How how exactly is that going to happen? And he gives her some vague, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the Most High will overshadow. And she's going, "Uh (laughs) (laughs) uh-huh. And even if she doesn't understand exactly how that's going to work, she allows it to happen. She gives her assent. But what God does is permits her to give her assent. God does not force God's self upon her. God gives an invitation. This is what God wants. She says yes. And the sheer trust and bravery of saying yes to this really unusual, very unclear, open-ended invitation is just breathtaking. Mm -hmm. And then she goes and spends time with her cousin Elizabeth. So they go and do this female bonding over unexpected pregnancies with profoundly (laughs) holy babies. That's amazing. And, And there they are. And, you know, John the Baptist, whom Elizabeth is carrying, leaps for joy in her womb when Mary comes because ostensibly he recognizes that Jesus is in Mary's womb. So he knows he's in the presence of God incarnate, even as God is being incarnated. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. Yeah, and Elizabeth is another interesting character, especially um, between her and uh, Zachariah. Yes. Their story is one of my personal favorite Advent stories. And the, the song of Zachariah that happens, I think is really fascinating. Well, it's intriguing. Luke really seems to be very warm and receptive about stories to women. I mean, if basically, if you want a warm, fuzzy story in the gospel, it's going to be in Luke um, because (laughs) he likes those heartwarming people stories. Mm -hmm. They include women though. Mm -hmm. He's just amazing in his capacity to do that. So what he does at the beginning is he literally silences the man. Yeah. And the story focuses on the women. So you get Mary, who has this solo appearance with Gabriel, and then you get Mary and Elizabeth and the time they spend together. And Zechariah is silenced because he does not respond with the kind, same kind of faithfulness mm-hmm. until Elizabeth gives birth to John and Zechariah consents to having him named John. And then he is freed to speak again. And that's when you get the song of Zechariah. And I feel like it would have been so interesting to see these two women try and raise these children. Yes. Because you're like, yeah, we know who you're going to be in 30 years. But like, there still is that time where they're like children and do need to be some sort of shaping happening within there right or is that just well and keep in mind we know who they're going to be in 30 years but it wasn't clear at all that mary and elizabeth did Mm -hmm. they they had these holy babies with these great forecasts of being holy people but no roadmap for how that would unfold or exactly what that meant Mm -hmm. 
And that meant trying to raise them. If you've ever heard in the, in the apocryphal literature, well, not the apocrypha, but other literature, like the Gospel of Thomas, mm-hmm. there are just terrible stories about, you know, toddler Jesus having temper tantrums and other interesting things. But it does make one wonder, yeah. what was Jesus like as a two-year-old or <laughs> an eight-year-old? or Yeah, because we sort of jump from him being presented at the temple to like, now he's a 30-year-old man. Right, and you had that 12-year-old, I decided to stay behind at the temple and have a conversation with the elders. Yeah. And didn't let anybody know. I, as a parent, I just imagine that panicked moment where you have that, I thought he was with you conversation, and, and he's not. <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, and God ha- always picked interesting women to carry his children, even with Sarah, Yes. Uh, and that that is going to Old Testament, but yes. like she laughed and was because she was like, This is so ridiculous that I would yes. carry a child in my age. Well, we think she was like ninety-nine. Yeah. I mean, it does seem laughable, quite literally. <laughs> but again, it's the sense that that nothing's impossible with God. Mm-hmm. But for us, it's it's hard to remember that. I mean, even in our everyday lives, it can be hard to remember that. Mm-hmm. That God can do things just beyond our wildest imagining. And I think the Bible tries to help us remember that and show us that it's a repeating theme. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that we're kind of sliding into the Old Testament, yes. um, did that quite gracefully. Um, who are some of your like big female people in the Old Testament? I know like... Sarah and Esther usually come to mind oh, yes. pretty quickly. Well, Sarah and Esther, and I, I can tell you some other fun ones you might not know of. Would you like to know yes. some of those? Well, in Genesis, there's this little saga around Moses, and most mm-hmm. people know Moses, but what they don't realize is that there is this little constellation of women that made the Moses saga possible. Mm. And they often get lost in the grandeur of Moses. Mm -hmm. So at the beginning in Exodus 1.15, when the Pharaoh orders the the Egyptian midwives to kill the Hebrew baby boys when they're born because there are just too many Hebrews. Mm -hmm. There are these two midwives named Pua and Shipra. Mm -hmm. And Pua and Shipra feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. So they refused to kill the Hebrew baby boys like they were ordered. And when Pharaoh called them in and wanted to know why they weren't doing this, they gave him the, oh, those Hebrew women, they're just so vigorous. They give birth before we even show up. Mm. So they were willing to lie to Pharaoh who held their lives in his hands so that they would not be killing the Hebrew baby boys. Mm-hmm. And then that led to Pharaoh actually ordering soldiers to kill Hebrew baby boys by throwing them in the Nile. So when Moses's mother gave birth to him, she built him literally a mini ark. Uh And she made this basket, coated it with pitumen and pitch. So it was waterproof, put him in it, sent him down the Nile River. So if you think like the ark again, Mm -hmm. the imagery's right there, with his sister Miriam tagging alongside. And they plotted it so it would arrive in the reeds right when pharaoh's daughter Mm. was coming down to bathe so she finds the little basket with a baby in it Mm 
-hmm. And she pulls him out and recognizes him as a Hebrew boy because Hebrew baby boys were circumcised. So she would have known he was Mm -hmm. a Hebrew baby boy. And she pulls him out. There's this baby. And up pops Miriam and says, oh, that looks like one of the Hebrew baby boys. Would you like me to get a Hebrew woman to nurse him for you? So she goes and gets his mother, her mother, and brings the mother (laughs) to Pharaoh's daughter. The women had to know, just have a Hebrew mother here ready to nurse. And she says, why, yes, which would be great. So Pharaoh's daughter hands Moses back to his mother Hmm. and says, I would like you to nurse him and then bring him to me at the palace. Mm -hmm. So he is safe because he is now the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. And they nursed until they were about three back then. Mm. I mean, many women still do, but culturally that was the norm. Mm -hmm. So his own mother got to nurse him Mm -hmm. and then bring him back to Pharaoh's daughter. So those women all made the birth, early life, and growing up of Moses possible so that the rest of the story could unfold. And I just love that little bit of teamwork that can easily be overlooked among the women. And then there's Esther, which many people know, and the fact that she risked her life to save the Jewish people from genocide because she agreed to appear in the presence of the king without being invited, which was punishable by death unless Mm -hmm. the king decided to extend the scepter to her, Mm -hmm. which he did, fortunately for all of us. But there's also, um, in the Apocrypha, there's a story about a woman named Judith mm-hmm. who does a similar thing. She is captured by an enemy general who thinks uh, she's beautiful. He's quite smitten with her. And she agrees to go in and dine with him and have wine with him. And he gets really drunk and he thinks he's going to have his way with her. And instead he falls asleep drunk and she uses his sword to chop off his head and she puts it in her food bag and walks back out with his head. (laughs) So she's eliminated the enemy general, Uh saving the Hebrew people again. Mm -hmm. And there's a similar woman named J.L. And uh, J.L. is in the book of Judges. And this is one of those fun stories, J.L. and the tent peg. So the prophet or judge Deborah uh, says to um, one of the brave generals, um, you have to capture the enemy commander Sisera. But if you don't capture him because you're afraid of him, a woman will get the glory. And so the men don't chase him down. And this woman, J.L., sees this enemy general running. She knows who he is. She invites him into her tent to hide. So she hides him. He falls asleep. She takes a tent peg and a hammer, drives the tent peg through his head while he's sleeping. Oh, my God. And conquers the enemy general. Wow. So there are these women who just do these amazing and sometimes like, wow. (laughs) Yeah. Things um, that we don't know about that save God's people time and time again. And if it weren't for them, who knows? It's like Rahab the prostitute who saves um, Joshua and the spies. Yeah. You just never know all these women who become brave and, and do things to save their people. Yeah, that's amazing. Um... So we've talked a lot about the women in the Bible who were kind of lit and awesome. Yes. Um, 
So let's sort of shift a little, if that's okay. Okay. Um, to women in religion and the church in the broader sense. Because if you go by the book, we're like killing generals and going crazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as we said at the beginning, women weren't ordained until the 70s right so it's like where what happened what shift occurred there well there were a couple one is that in the early church if you read in the acts of the apostles Mm -hmm. you will find that women were right there engaged in early ministry one of my favorite stories from that is of lydia i have a daughter named lydia (laughs) uh, a dyer of purple who was an independent businesswoman and one of the first converts in the greek-speaking world Mm -hmm. and she supported and funded the ministry of paul So she had a huge role to play. Um, And there were other women who were deacons in the early church. And there are women mentioned whose names were later sort of tweaked to sound like they might have been males. And when you go back to the early text, you find out, oh, no, that's actually a female name. Mm -hmm. So there were women who were engaged in early ministry. There are early... Um, mosaics. There's one of um, Bishop Theodora. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and people tried to say it was Theodore, but Theodora has a bus line. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Hard to miss. Can't really explain that. Yeah, out. <laughs> yeah. And um, there were a number of women who were engaged. But what happens is as you spread Christianity into the Greek speaking world, mm-hmm where women's proper role was limited to the household. It was one thing when you had house churches, Mm. but when especially you get into Constantine in the 300s and it becomes an official religion, then women's roles are still limited to the household. And when the church became acceptable to be more public, it was not acceptable for women to have public roles in the church. Mm. And that's when it became more limited. Mm-hmm. And that's when documents, because it was a state religion, became more altered to produce an image that was male-led. Okay. Because that was the public role for men. Mm-hmm. And that's when you came up with like Paul, who has what we call the Hausstelfen in German, but the household lists mm-hmm. of what were appropriate women's and men's duties. Those are Greek household lists. That's how Greek society organized itself. Mm-hmm. So that's what happens when you have uh, a new religion encountering a culture that has a strict bifurcation of male and female roles. Yeah. And so that got carried forward in the church. But also, I feel like a lot of church women, even though they are like secretaries or um, stay mostly in the kitchen and stuff. As someone who has a lot of aunts that are these strong (laughs) church women, I understand that a lot of times the real doings of a church Mm -hmm. happen in the kitchen and you always want to make sure the secretary knows what's going on because they're going to be the person that actually makes sure whatever you need done is done. Well, women have not often had overtly powerful roles in the church. That didn't mean they didn't have power in the church. 
It just meant that women that lived into whatever opportunities were presented to them for ministry and often pushed the barriers to make it broader and more inclusive. Because we used to have deaconesses before we had female deacons. Yes. Um, but we've always had women in ministry. It just wasn't always officially recognized. Yes. You didn't have the collar to right. sort of sanction it. But you can do a lot without a collar, too. Yes, you can. <laughs> I, we are all called to ministry. Not all of those ministries are ordained, nor should they all be. That's why we all have a vocation or a calling. And we're asked to embody that by using the gifts and talents God has given us and doing the work God has called us to do. Um, so you are an ordained female priest. I am. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your process through ordination, if you're okay with that? If sure. you can be sort of basic. Well, I'm one of the women who was ordained not in the first wave. So the very first women were ordained in what we would call irregularly here in the U.S. Actually, the first woman in the Anglican Communion was Lee Tim Oi. Okay. Yes, in 1945. Mm -hmm. And she was ordained, I believe, in Shanghai um, because they didn't have enough priests. Mm -hmm. And the bishop there saw her as a priest. Oh, nice. And that's one of those little bits of history we didn't know about in the West for quite some time. But in, in the United States, it was in 1976 where we had that Philadelphia 11. Mm -hmm. And they were irregularly ordained, which means it was without permission. And three retired bishops did that. <laughs> so they were going to be prophetic and brave, and they were retired. What were someone going to do, fire them? Yeah, no. So they did that, and it was a bold move. And then that inspired the regular rising of their ordinations and the ability to allow women to be ordained, mm -hmm. both as deacon and as priests. Mm -hmm. They had been deacons prior to that, but not priests. And it was a very slow process because even after that was approved simply by changing the pronoun, not mm -hmm. by passing a separate amendment, just changing the pronoun to mean that he was all inclusive in okay. the ordination rite. Um, it was still determined on a case-by-case -case bishop by case-by-case -case with each bishop. Oh, wow. So there were large numbers of bishops who still would not allow it. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until recently that, and I mean a few years ago, oh, no. <laughs> yes, that it's allowed in every diocese now. Mm -hmm. So even in dioceses that did ordain women, and there weren't very many in the 70s, they often could not place women in a parish. Mm. So I was in that second wave, not after the first wave, but the second wave who was ordained without having to have uh, bomb sniffing dogs and bulletproof us, <laughs> but who got a lot of backlash. So I've been ordained since 1988. Mm -hmm. wow. So yes, so 32 years <laughs> when I was ordained as a deacon and then 31 ordained as a priest. And I was allowed to be ordained, but not deployed in my diocese because they had great difficulty finding a placement for mm -hmm. a woman. Um, fortunately for me, I was able to find a position at St. Luke's in Atlanta, which had an opening for deacons in training. Mm -hmm. So they accepted deacons who had difficulty being placed in their diocese. Oh, nice. 
and they had room for one to three in any given year, just mm-hmm. for an academic year. So it was me and a gay man. <laughs> wow. In the 80s? In the 80s. And needless to say, they were trailblazers in <laughs> yes, that way. definitely. So I served there as a deacon and then served in Los Angeles and then back again in Atlanta, and then in Western Michigan, in Michigan, in Ohio, in New York, and then here. Nice. Yes. It's amazing. So I've been in several different dioceses and different capacities. I served for quite a while as an associate because it was extremely difficult to find a place as a rector mm-hmm. as a woman. Uh, But I've served in places that have been very small and rural and very large. St. Luke's Atlanta had 2,000 parishioners. We were televised, had an economic development corporation, a counseling center, a medical clinic for the homeless, a soup kitchen, and just all kinds of phenomenal ministries. And then I've been in little tiny rural places and pretty much everything in between. Do you think that it is easier and more accessible now for women to become ordained, though? Definitely. It is easier. It's more accessible. That still varies widely upon location. Mm. There Mm -hmm. are still places where it's allowed, but rare Mm -hmm. or not encouraged. Or one might be ordained, but still have a very difficult time finding a place where they're allowed to serve. Mm. And I have still been told as recently as 10 years ago. So I I interviewed at a place where they were having trouble finding someone willing to serve. Mm -hmm. There were four of us. The three men all withdrew. And the search committee chair looked at me and said, we just can't do it. We can't call a woman. (laughs) And, And people will say, well, that's illegal, but not in the church. It isn't? No, because the church is exempted from what you would think of as most labor laws in that regard. Huh. Yes. We should change that. That seems illegal. <laughs> but <laughs> I've, I've been told I, I couldn't have a job because I was pregnant. I've been told I wouldn't be called because I'm female. And, and with no trace of self-awareness about that. Yeah. And it's like they don't even realize that that isn't. A great thing to say no. or something. No. Because there's a difference of you not fitting the parish or like you not fitting. Right. That, it's like, yeah, sure, whatever. But to be like, oh, you are pregnant. There's no way you could right. work here. It's not. The, it's always appropriate to discern the right fit for a parish. And we want to encourage them. That's yeah. one of the things I do now in my current position is to help parishes and clergy try to discern the right person for the a call that is open. And so that we want the best chance for both the clergy person and the congregation to succeed in their efforts to grow and serve and proclaim the love of God and embody that. But um, to eliminate someone based on anything we would think of that shouldn't be legal, like Mm -hmm. their, their race, their ethnicity, their sexuality, their gender, or ability or disability Mm -hmm. those are things we'd like to encourage people to move beyond yeah and to really understand who the person is and not just the kind of packaging they come in Mm -hmm. definitely um so the title of this episode is called choose your adventure double or angel um do you and i chose that because i feel like a lot of representation of the bible in the church is that there's only two 
types of ways that you can be a woman in the church. You are either the holier than thou sort of the Virgin Mary idea, mm-hmm. or you are the devil, the prostitute, that kind of idea. Do you think that's fair? Do you think that's an accurate title for this one? What do you think about that? Well, I think it's a simplistic part of our culture to look at the Bible and assume that women are portrayed either as saints or sinners Mm -hmm. and and nothing in between. Because if you actually read a lot of the stories, especially the ones I mentioned today, you will see that women are by and large much more complex characters than are portrayed culturally when you just pull a little nugget out of the Bible. Yeah. Especially when like anything in life, you take it out of context. Yes. Um, Even Eve, it's much more complicated than that uh, Adam and Eve and the Apple story is usually portrayed. Um, And Mary Magdalene and Mary, Mm -hmm. they're all much more complicated, real people um, in the stories than when we just take them out of context and see something simple, or we use them as a trope or a metaphor. Mm -hmm. I think as with any person, you have to understand them in their fullness. Mm -hmm. And that when we take the time to do that, we can move well beyond either saint or sinner because any human being is a mix of both of those things. Mm -hmm. We are all um, lowercase saints if we try to follow Jesus because um, Paul addresses us as the all the saints in Providence or all mm-hmm. the saints in Philippi because to be a saint with that lowercase s really means we're the ones who try to follow Jesus. Yeah. It doesn't mean we're saintly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're <Yeah>. just <laughs> seeking to be more fully embodying of the love of God. But we're also all sinners because we are all broken. Mm-hmm. We're all in need of redemption. We can all learn and grow and evolve. Mm -hmm. So everyone's a bit of both. Nice. Uh, So we're sort of coming to the end of our time here. Is there any last thing that you're like, we can't do this topic if I don't get to mention this? Is there anything? Of course, we've like missed a bunch of stuff because it's a long book and there's so many things that we can talk about. Um, But is there anything that you're like, it would be negligent of me not to talk about this before we end. I think the most helpful thing for me is always to remember that when when we look at the Bible now, we think of it as a book because we get it that way. Mm -hmm. But the way it was originally created is that each of the books in the Bible was a separate scroll. So it's like really the Bible is from Biblios, which means library. It's a whole library of sacred stories. Mm. And if we look at each of those stories as like, this is the story about Ivy. Mm -hmm. And we can understand it in its context and its complexity and go, oh, I never knew she was like this or that that happened or I can see myself in this. Or there are things in the Bible that make you at least make me weep and laugh and wonder and marvel and go, ooh. Uh, (laughs) It's just far more human Mm -hmm. than we often think of because God lives and moves and operates in and through people. Mm. So when we begin to understand the sort of delightfulness and messiness and complicated aspects of it's God in whom we live and move and have our being, but also... that God comes through us, Mm -hmm. that's going to be different for everyone. And I think that if we begin to see this as one of a whole series of sacred stories that continue, Mm -hmm. 
then we understand that God is still living and moving through each of us. Mm. And it's an ongoing story. It continues to unfold. The Bible doesn't say we're done. No. If you look at the end of John, it really says, I tell you these things so that you will know that Mm -hmm. Jesus is God, but also that not all the stories are written in this book. Mm. They're continuing to be written. So the Bible is a wonderful beginning for understanding all of that. It's not the end of the story. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening to Tea Time Theology. We would like to thank our sponsor, the Episcopal Diocese of Rhode Island, and the Right Reverend Nicholas Nisley, as well as our guests today. You can follow us at Tea Time Theology on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This season of Tea Time Theology is hosted and organized by Ivy Swinsky. Our music is mixed and performed by Mo Ray Akande. The podcast is recorded and edited by me, Taylor Wilkie. Tis he to see.